we're going to continue in our series on the book of 1 John. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we've been um, digging into this. This is actually week four now of our series. And so we're about a chapter and a half into this. And already we've uh, seen some really awesome things uh, that John is trying to write to the readers of this letter. And uh, before we get into any of our content today, I wanted to just kind of reiterate some of the things that we've talked about up to this point, because I think it will help set the stage for what we're going to be unpacking today. So as we begin to read chapter one of this letter, really John's introduction, he starts off by just shining a huge light on the reality and the revelation of Christ. He starts right at the beginning by saying, what was from the beginning, what we have seen, what we've heard. He says, what we touched with our hands. In other words, I I had a personal relationship with him. I I knew him. I know that this was real. I, I saw him after his resurrection, that this is truly what has happened. And, and after he lays out this truth in front of us, he then begins to just talk about some of the beautiful character and nature of God. And he talks about how God is light and how God is faithful and just to forgive us. Just these beautiful things that we can lean into. But as we turned to chapter two last week, what we saw is that John is now beginning to lean into uh, what our response to those things should be. If God is light, if he is faithful and just to forgive us, then what should be our response? And the first thing that he says is that we should come to know him that we should come to personally and intimately know him for who he is. This is what he says. If if God is light, in fact, he, he describes Jesus as an advocate. If we have an advocate that allows us to have relationship with the Father, then we need to lean into this. We need to get to know him. We need to love him and and obey him. This is the good and right response that he lays before us. And so this is what brings us to our lesson today. And so I want to set just a few expectations as we get into our lesson today. I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that um, really throughout these messages, I'm requiring a great deal of, of focus from you guys, just because how this whole thing is set up, we're, we're digging pretty deep into some of these things. We're kind of bouncing around a little bit. And so if you're not focused very easily, you uh, will not understand what John is talking about. And I think today's message might be uh, the best example of that. We're gonna have to really focus, really lean in to see what John is talking about and ultimately what he is leading us towards. And so just a few qualifiers before we get into this. Um, the, The first part of this message is going to be completely teaching. Okay, Um, I I just want to lay before you some information that we read through scripture. I'm going to talk about some really interesting concepts. And so really this first part is going to be more of just a true study of the word, which, which I love to do. That's my favorite thing to do. And so I just want you to understand that's going to be our approach. And what comes with that is just a few different things. And the first thing is, um, uh, towards the beginning, we're going to talk about some, some different viewpoints that people have around the content that we're going to read. Okay, There are many different opinions as to what John is talking about, Even even as you study different scholars and different theologians, there's, there's different opinions out there. So what I want to do is lay them before you and allow you to continue to dig in and study and see where you might fall. Now, one huge thing 
that I wanna call out with this is as we get into some of these secondary issues that we read in scripture, what we have to understand is that we can disagree on these things and yet still love one another and, and treat one another well and care for one another. That, that is possible. So I just wanna make sure you understand, you and I can disagree on some of these things and yet still love one another quite well. Okay, And I think sometimes um, what happens is we live in a world where if you disagree on something, like you have to go on opposite sides of the room. Like you believe this, you believe that, now stay separated. That's not how this works. We can disagree here, but we still have to be a people of love. Okay, So, so that's the, the first thing. The other thing with some of these concepts that we're gonna be talking about is you need to understand that they are um, peripheral to the real point. In other words, they're, they're not the central point, but they help us with the real point. And so the reason I call that out is because I don't want us to get too caught up in these external things and not realize really where John is trying to push us, okay? So try to, to hold that tension in your mind and in your heart because ultimately, hopefully we can land the plane where we need to and where ultimately John is leading us towards, okay? So that's a, a, a lot, a lot of, uh, qualifiers there, but I think it will be helpful as we begin to dig in. So we're going to go to chapter two. We're going to read verse 18. Before we do that, I'd like to just say a quick word of prayer so that we can be in the right frame of mind to study this and see what the word of God has to say. So if you could bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we love you so much. We, we truly do. We're so grateful for who you are and for what you've done. And uh, we're coming together this morning faithfully to try to, to see what your word has to say, to see what you're trying to speak into our hearts. And I pray that you would help each one of us to truly open up our hearts and minds um, to what you have for us, uh, that you would help us to focus, to get rid of all distractions, just to, to really lean into this and see what you have for us. And uh, hopefully we can walk out understanding and, and, and being able to walk in your word like I believe you've called us to do. We give you all the glory, all the honor for what you're gonna do, how you're gonna continue to move and stir through this. We give you all the credit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, well, let's go ahead and read chapter two, verse 18. We're just gonna read this one verse. We're gonna stop and talk about some of these things and see where we can land. This is what John says. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know that it is the last hour. Okay, so we just read through one verse, but I think you can probably pretty clearly see that there's some interesting things that John is laying before us. These concepts that maybe are a little bit high reaching that we need to just try to understand what exactly John is referring to. He uses the phrase, it is the last hour. What does he mean when he says that? He says the word antichrist or antichrist. What exactly is he trying to drive at when he says these things? And so I wanna dig into this at the beginning just to to see exactly what John might be trying to tell us. And so I wanna start with this phrase, it is the last hour. What in the world is John talking about when he says this to these people? And so this is really our, our primary uh, view today that has many different opinions. And so what I wanna do is lay them before you and kind of discuss maybe the pros and cons of each of them so that you can continue to dig in for yourself. So when John says that it is the last hour, there are really three primary viewpoints 
that people have as to what exactly he is talking about. And, and the first one is what I would call the traditional viewpoint, maybe what you might naturally think as you read through this. And that is that John here is speaking of a time in the undetermined future when Christ will return. Okay, whether you want to call that the end of the age or the second coming of Christ, many would say this is what he's referring to. Christ is coming back and we need to be ready for this. It is the last hour. Now, I would say that contextually, this does make some sense for one main reason, and that, and that is what John is trying to accomplish in the heart of the reader, and we're gonna talk about this in a few minutes, but I think he's trying to create something within these people and this particular subject matter would certainly do that. So I think it matches up from that standpoint, but I think the difficulty with this viewpoint is that John here is speaking of a last hour that many would say we are apparently in thousands of years later. So, so why is it that he would use this specific phrase? And, and that does cause a bit of a problem. And let me tell you why that is. Throughout scripture, uh, throughout the New Testament, we see many different phrases like this. Um, we see that scripture talks about the last days. We see that scripture talks about the end of the age. We see things like this, but this phrase last hour seems to signify something that is a little closer, a little sooner, maybe even something that is in the moment. That's typically what this word represents. In fact, many times throughout the gospels, when it would talk about how Jesus would heal somebody at once, this was the word that was used. It was something that seemed to be immediate. In fact, in the gospel of John chapter four, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is here already when the worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. So there seems to be uh, something going on here that is soon, that is, that is close, that is maybe even in the moment. And so if you hold to this traditional viewpoint, that's kind of the thing that you have to, to rectify. Why would John use this specific verbiage if he's talking about something that is so far into the future? Okay, so that is the traditional view. The second one is what I would call the transitional viewpoint. And that is when John uses this phrase, he's speaking of the end of the apostolic age. So let me explain what exactly that means. Uh, as John is writing this letter, we have to understand that he, along with any other apostles that are still alive, are obviously growing in age. And, and it's becoming obvious that, that they're not gonna be here forever. They're gonna eventually pass away. And when that happens, there's gonna be a huge transition from those who actually knew Christ, those that walked with him, as John says, those that touched him, there's gonna be a huge transition from this to now the, the second and third hand witnesses who are gonna bring it down the generations. So, so this is a pretty big handoff that is going to occur. And so maybe this is what he's referring to. Now, I think again, contextually, this does make a little bit of sense because as we've talked about throughout this series, what's going on at this moment as he's writing this is there are false teachers who are going throughout the region and they're spreading false information about Christ. Okay, they're, they're saying this isn't real, this isn't a reality, this isn't true. And so it makes sense to me that John would say, hey, I'm about to pass away, so I need you guys to be ready to handle this, right? I need you to stand firm in your faith. I need you to defend and, and spread the gospel. And so that does make some sense. The difficulty here is that it doesn't necessarily line up with the whole of scripture, 
Okay, so we always have to look for consistency within scripture. And this would really be the only time in the New Testament where this specific transition is really spoken of. Okay, now, now that doesn't mean that that's not what he's talking about, but that's kind of the difficulty with that particular viewpoint. Okay, so we have a traditional view, we have a transitional view. And the third one is what I would call a historical viewpoint. And that is that John is speaking here of a time that they are about to personally experience or, or maybe that they are actively experiencing at the time. And so what historians would say is that he's referring here to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, if you're not familiar with this particular event in history, you can go, it's, it's something that truly happened. You can read about it and study about it. But many say this is what he is referring to. And let me just give you some high reaching information as to what happened during this time. We know that in the first century, there were rising tensions between the Romans and the Jews. This was going on even during the, the life of Christ. We see this happening. But decades now, after the ascension of Christ, these tensions continue to rise. And it escalates to the point to where in the spring of 70 AD, by order of the Roman emperor, uh, the Romans finally invade Jerusalem. They, they attack the city. And after months of, of battle and fighting and hostility, the Romans eventually overtake the city. And what happened after that was quite momentous for the history and even the prophecy of Israel. A couple of huge things happened at this time. First off, this officially ended um, the Jewish state meaning no longer was Israel the sovereign homeland of the Jewish people. This is a monumental thing in history that happened. The second thing that we see is that the, the temple, the beacon and the pinnacle of their system was completely destroyed. It was burned to the ground, completely destroyed. And in fact, even some of the sacraments within it were paraded and mocked around the city. So this was a huge thing that happened in their history. And on top of all of that, according to some historians, over a million Jews were killed during this time. Thousands more were taken as slaves to Rome. And in fact, to this day, this is still one of the biggest events ever in Jewish history. So many would say that this is what John is referring to. This is about to happen. Maybe we are even in this moment and he wants to warn the people. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is the viewpoint that I am most inclined to believe for two reasons. And the first is the specific phrase that he uses. He says, it is the last hour. Now, again, he's talking about something that seems to be much sooner, much closer than some of the other phrases that are used. But the second reason I say this is because if you study the book of Matthew chapter 24, it's a huge chapter when it comes to prophecy. Jesus specifically references that this event is gonna happen prophetically. He prophesies this is going to happen. He says the temple will be torn down, no stone will be left. And of course, decades later, that's exactly what happens. But what's interesting about it is Jesus says that one of the leading factors of this event is gonna be that false teachers are gonna rise up and they're gonna try to mislead people away from me. So Jesus says, hey, these false teachers are gonna come. They're gonna start spreading falsehoods. They're gonna lead people away from me. This is a sign that this event is about to happen. And so just based off of this specific verbiage and even the prophetic context, this is the viewpoint that I would most be inclined to believe, okay? So, so there you go. I'll lay that in front of you. You can continue to look into that yourself. Here's the thing. We could debate back and forth on what is true or what is most accurate about this. The, the question I'm more intrigued about is, why is John even talking about this? 
<laughs> Why is John even bringing this about in this particular letter to these people? And we're gonna hit the pause button on that. We're gonna talk about that in a second because we do have a little bit more work to do with this particular verse because John uses an interesting word, actually two different times. He speaks of antichrist or antichrist in this verse. Now, I would imagine this is a word that all of us have probably heard before in many different forms and context. And so I just wanna make sure that we understand to the best of our ability what exactly John is referring to. Now, here's the thing, before we even do this, one of the first rules when it comes to studying scripture is that you have to let scripture interpret scripture. Meaning as we read through the Bible, we cannot allow our preconceived notions or, or the things that we may or may not have been taught as children to lead us and guide us. We have to allow scripture to speak for itself, okay? And so here's the thing. The word antichrist is only used five times in the New Testament. It's only used five times. Four of those are in 1 John, in this letter that we are studying. The only other time that it's used is in 2 John. So in two of John's writings, he uses this particular word. Now we've already read two of the examples in verse 18, but I wanna read the other three so that we can try to get some context into what he might be talking about. So let's go to chapter two, verse 22. John says this, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. This is the Antichrist. Chapter four, verses two and three. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. One more example, 2 John chapter 1, verse seven. He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Okay, so in a matter of moments, we have just read through every example where this word is used in scripture. And so if we're gonna allow it to speak for itself, there are a couple of things that we can immediately take from what John is talking about here. The first thing that we can take is that John is defining this term as somebody who denies or refuses to confess that Jesus truly came in the flesh. That's who he's talking about. That's exactly how he defines it. He says they are in opposition of him. They are anti him because they deny that he came. That's the definition that he gives it. Now, contextually, again, as we understand that false teachers are actively going throughout the region. In fact, we have specifically talked about how they are denying the incarnation of Christ. They're saying he did not come in the flesh. And so really it's pretty clear that John is pointing a finger directly at these people. You are anti-Christ, okay? Now, the other thing that we see here is that these antichrists were clearly in the world in the first century. He, he says they have appeared. They are already in the world. So at least explicitly, John is not referencing a person that is to come or somebody that we are to look out for. Instead, he's speaking of something which is already in their midst. That's clearly what he's talking about. And in fact, in this particular context, he's almost exclusively speaking of a group of people or, or a collective mindset. That's what he's talking about. Let's reread 2 John chapter 1, verse 7 again. 
He says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Who is the deceiver? Who is the antichrist? The many deceivers who have gone out into the world. And so this is what we're picking up from what John is saying. He's talking about groups of people who deny the incarnation of Christ. These are the people who are antichrist or anti-him, okay? That's what he's referencing. Now, here's the thing. Whether you believe as you read through scripture that there is an antichrist that has or will singularly embody these characteristics, frankly seems to be irrelevant to what John is trying to talk about here. Because his bigger concern is that this is happening right now. These, these people are in the world right now. They are spreading false information about Christ right now. This is his primary concern. Now let's go back to the question that I asked earlier. Why in the world is John talking about this? Why, why in the world is he even bringing these concepts to light? It seems like we can maybe easily be confused by this. And so why exactly is he saying these things? And I believe that he's trying to create two things in the heart of his readers. I believe he's trying to create awareness and he's trying to create some urgency. In other words, he's trying to make them aware that these things are happening in the world right now. This is happening in front of you. You need to be aware of this. And then the other thing is you need to be urgent about opposing that. You, you need to make sure that this isn't something to be casual about. You're not supposed to be laid back when it comes to this. You need to stand strong in the gospel. This is what John is talking about. So understand he's not talking about these things to incite fear or to incite worry or panic. In fact, we've said from the beginning, this entire letter is about encouraging the believers, not discouraging them. So that's not what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do is create this tension in the heart of the reader so that he can point them where they need to go. He's trying to, you can just imagine this kind of bubbling up within the reader, what they're hearing, so that he can point them to the ultimate answer. And he gives them two things that they need to, to be aware of, two directions that they need to go. And the first direction is this, over and over and over again in this letter, he says, abide in God, abide in God. Th think about what he's saying. He's talking about all of these things that are happening in the world. He's talking about this great urgency within them. And then he stops and he says, but abide in God. You, you need to stay in him. That's where he's trying to point them. Now, we've talked about this concept before. We'll talk about it again. But again, from a high level standpoint, what it means to abide is to dwell, to, to remain in something. And so what he's saying is, I want you to abide. I want you to dwell in God. That's where you need to go. Now, there are nine specific references to this throughout the book of 1 John, which is a lot. There's, there's nine specific references, but what's interesting about it is read through this letter. He not only talks about what abiding means, he talks about actually how we can do that. He talks about how we can actually remain in God. And so I wanna show you the two consistent themes that he shows us over and over and over again in terms of how we abide in him. One of them will not surprise you, the other one might. So let's read through the first example. Chapter three, verse 24, John clearly says, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. You wanna know how to abide in God? Keep his commandments. He's talking about obedience. We talked about this last week. And what we said is that biblical obedience means that you faithfully and passionately follow Christ. That's what it means to obey him. And so if you want to know how to abide, you faithfully and you passionately follow Christ. But what we also talked about is how the starting point of obedience is love. 
We will not obey what we don't love. And so really what John is saying at the heart of things is you have to love God. If you wanna abide in him, you have to love him. That's what he's saying. Now I want you to think about, because we've heard this many, many times, right? That we are to, to love God. But I want you to think about what that would look like in your daily life. I want these things to like run through your head. What would it look like to love him every day of my life? What does it look like for you to love your children every day of your life? What does it look like for you to love your spouse every day of your life or or your, your friends and the rest of your family? What does that look like? And I want you to relate that to your relationship with him. As I was thinking about this for myself, I, uh, I started thinking about how, man, when I am in a rough season of my life, like I, I, I'm, I'm so stressed out and I feel such a heavy weight on my shoulders. I started to think about how when I make my way home and when I pick up one of my kids and I hold them next to me, everything else just falls away. It's like nothing else matters. Everything comes right back into order because this is, this is what I love. This is what matters to me. And many a nights I have done that with tears streaming down my face as I begin to realize how much I love my, my children and what that really means to me. I started to think about what that would mean in my relationship with God. What if when I was in trouble, what if when I was stressed out to the max, what if I just ran to his presence? What, what if I just couldn't help but, but hold him close to me? Like, what if that was my response? That's what it would look like to love him. In fact, the writer of this letter, John, one of the most beautiful things we see is in the final supper. John is just leaning against Christ. It's like, he doesn't care about anything else. He just wants to be touching him. What if that was our approach? That we just wanted to be around him. We, we just wanted to be encompassed by his presence every chance that we got. That's what it would look like to love him. That's what it would look like. If we wanna abide, these are the measures that we need to take, okay? Now, here's the second way that we abide. And this is the one that might surprise you a little bit, but this is what he says in chapter two, verse 10. He says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Now, we know who the light is from chapter one. He's speaking of God. What John is saying is that we abide in God by how we love one another. Think about that. We abide, we remain with God through our love for one another. Now, I don't think we really understand the depth and the significance of loving one another. I, I really don't. We, we talk about it all the time. We know, in fact, that it's written all over scripture, but I still don't think that we really get it in our day-to-day lives. Even biblically, Jesus says, this is how they're gonna know that you're my disciples, by how you love one another. Like that's gonna be evidence that you're my disciple. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever seen this scripture before to be honest with you, but chapter three, verse 14, watch what John says. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. We know that we've passed out of death into life. How? By how we love one another. And this is how we abide in God. Think about what that means for you. Think about, again, what that means for your daily life and how you care about and how you love other people around you. This is how we abide in God. That's amazing. That's amazing. So as we abide in God, what we have to understand is is that ultimately means that we would love him and that we would love his people. That's what it means. And that is certainly consistent with scripture. Because when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on that. This is what matters most. Let me tell you what that means for you. That means that when 
life is so crazy around you. And, and as you look around, it seems like a, a whirlwind and you're not sure how, how to make sense of it. It feels like your head is spinning. Listen, we abide by loving God and loving others. That means when you wake up Monday morning and the cares of life are so heavy on you, we abide by loving God and loving others over and over and over again. This is how we live our lives, through the good, through the bad, through the blessings, through the persecutions. This is who we are. We love God and we love other people. That's how we abide in him. Again, think about this context. John is creating this this urgency in these people ultimately to say, just love God and love others. That's what you need to do. Now, the second place that he points them, and, and I would say this is even more significant for us, is that not only are we to abide in God, but God abides in you. God abides in you. I want you to think about how important that is. Think about how good of news that is. Now, listen to me. I said that the the idea that we would abide in God is talked about nine times in this letter. God abiding in us is talked about 11 times. 11 times this is spoken about. Now, let me remind you, to abide means to dwell. It means to, to remain. God abides in you. And let me give you a few examples as we see it throughout this letter. Chapter two, verse 27. He says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, remains with you. Chapter three, verse nine. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. Chapter three, verse 24. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Chapter four, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. Over and over and over again, John encourages the reader to say, God abides in you. He he remains in you. In fact, it's quite interesting because as John bounces back and forth between talking about the readers of this letter and talking about the false teachers that are circling around the region, he says something very interesting about the false teachers in chapter two, verse 19. He says this about them. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained or abided with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. What is John talking about when he says this? What he is saying, how he is trying to encourage them is is saying, when you put your faith in Christ, scripture says that you are redeemed, that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. God abides in you. When you truly believe in him, he remains, he dwells. He's, He's not going anywhere. Now, why is John calling this out as he speaks to these readers? Well, because remember, think about this. Put yourself in their shoes. He's talking to a group of people who have had to sit there and watch as their closest friends and family walked away from the faith. Think about that. These are people that they've spent time with, who they've lived life with, who they've done ministry with, and they have to sit there and watch as they turn their backs on the entire thing. And I don't care if you're the strongest person of faith in the world, but when something like that happens, your mind begins to run. 
you start to question some things, man, is this where I'm headed? Am I susceptible to this? What is going on? And in the midst of this, he says, no, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Don't, don't be discouraged. Don't allow that to create fear in your heart. God abides in you. He's not going anywhere. This is how he encourages them. But then he has even greater news than that. And this is the part that I wanna lean into as we wrap up this message. Watch what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He says, not only does God abide in you, but he is greater than anything that might try to come against you. He's greater. He's told these people, it is the last hour. Many antichrists have appeared, but he ultimately says, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Can you imagine the fear and the anxiety that would fall on the floor as these readers hear the good news of this? We, I'm just gonna be transparent with you guys. We are in a, a season right now as a body of Christ where people are struggling. People are going through deep anguish, deep pain. Things that you can't wrap your mind around. You don't know what to do with these things. And here's how I wanna encourage every single one of you. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. I need you to hear that. I need you to believe that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Nothing can stand against you. God is for you. Stand strong. Continue to draw closer to him. He abides in you. I love you guys so much. And when you guys hurt, I promise I hurt with you but that pales in comparison to how much God cares about you. And so I wanna stand with you. I wanna be with you every step of the way. But what's far more important is that God is with you. He is for you. He's greater than anything that might come against you. just bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, I, I pray right now. I'm calling upon you right now to reach deep into the hearts of your people. Whatever it is that they're carrying, Whatever the situation is that seems to be surrounding them, I pray that you would speak into their hearts right now. That you are with them. That you are for them. That you are greater. That even as they open their eyes and they see the whirlwind around them, even as they look around and they see the enemy surrounding them, they know greater is he 
that is in me than he that is in the world. It doesn't matter what might come against us. It doesn't matter what might try to stand. We ultimately put our hope and our faith in you. And we know that you are greater. We know that you are better. We know that you are superior to anything that might try to come against us. So right now, we lay it all at your feet. Right now, we put our whole trust. Right now, we put our whole trust in you. We believe that you are in control. We believe that you're going to take care of it. We're going to keep stepping every day of our lives. Keep moving forward in you. Keep drawing closer to you. Keep allowing you to equip us and prepare us for what you have for us. In Jesus' name. right now in your life where as you look around if you're being honest with yourself it just seems like too much seems like there's there's no answer there's no way to get around it I'm just I'm completely out of control whether that relates to you or maybe one of your loved ones or one of your close friends I just want to take a step of faith today that we would put it in his hands, that we would stop carrying the weight of it. I know that's not easy. I know that's not easy, but that we would continue to abide in him, to trust in him. So if I could get everybody to just close your eyes right now. As a step of faith, just to show that you trust in God. If you're in a situation like that right now, I want to raise your hand as high as it can go. 
I want you to put your hand up as high as it can go. Don't be ashamed. Put that hand up. And I want you to tell God right now that through this raised hand, I'm giving you this situation. I'm trusting in you. You are greater. You are wiser. Your thoughts are higher than mine. I'm giving it to you right now. I want you to proclaim that. In the name of Jesus, I want you to proclaim that it is done. That he is in control. That he's going to work it for good. That he knows what he's doing. In Jesus' name right now, we give these things to you. Because we trust you. Because we know that you're greater. Because we know that you're bigger. Because we know that there's nothing that can stand against us as your children. That you are with us every step of the way. And right now, we release these situations to you. And we're going to watch as you come in and as you overcome as you always do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So be it. praise one more time. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. You are so good.